going to go. Let's pray, and we'll dig into it. Jesus, we love you, and we need more of you in our lives, more of your presence, more of your, your fullness. There's a, a psalm that's been on my heart all morning. Uh, it says, give thanks to the Lord with your whole heart. Psalm 138, verse 1. And just, uh, I think it's sort of been bothering me today that maybe there are some of us that are in this with half of our heart, that are guarded and not allowing Jesus to take over all of us. Things have happened, um, events or circumstances that have caused us to pull back, and so we walk through life holding on to our heart, holding on to our life and not allowing those walls to break down like we sang about. And I just, if even as I say that, you're thinking, you're thinking of yourself, um, I just want to pray for you. Jesus, I, uh, you are a whole heart kind of God. You've called us into a life where we can trust you with our lives. We can hand ourselves over to you completely and you are trustworthy. And Lord, I just pray for us today as we go into your scriptures, would there just be this awareness of your safety in the sense that you are always good and always faithful, but also the sense of adventure that you're calling us into something that is not like a normal human life. It's not supposed to be easy but it is always good. So Lord, help us today to see you and we want to see you today and give us courage to walk wherever you lead us. In your name, amen. All right, um, we are in week 25 of 1 Corinthians and this has been, um, it's been an incredible journey for me. I have been shaped by this letter. It's been challenging for me. Uh, just to pick you up on one of the major themes that's been going on, Paul is writing into a highly diverse church, a church that is made up of uh, Jews and Gentiles, two significantly different ethnic people groups. It's made up of rich and poor. The socioeconomic spectrum is represented in the church. It's made up of men and women. The, the gender diversity exists in the church. And we see just these, these groups that Paul is writing in, and he's trying to knit them together. To understand that life in Christ draws us together. There's unity in the body of Christ when the Spirit of God is leading us. And he's, he's helping us shape this and understand this and know this as he writes this letter to the Corinthian church. There have been a couple of things that he's had to deal with over the course of the letter that have dealt with ways that people are acting that disunify. And one of those has related to this idea of spirituality. Who is the most spiritual person in the church? Who is the one that stands above others? And there's been a little bit of arrogance that's come into the Corinthian church. That's something that we can gather from the way that Paul has written this letter. If you go back to chapter 1, verses 4 through 7, Paul gives a little bit of an insight into what he's about to talk about in chapter 12, 13, and 14. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul planted the seed in the very beginning of the letter about this idea of spiritual gifts. And here he's circling back to it. After he's dealt with all the disunity components in the church, he's circling back to spiritual gifts to try and help this church understand that there is one spirit who distributes gifting to individual believers as he sees fit. But it is the spirit who does the gifting. It's not the person. And so in that, Paul's goal is twofold here. We are going to talk about spiritual gifts, but it would be a mistake to say that's the main point of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The main point that Paul is going to be getting at, and these could be 1A and 1B, 
But 1A is unity. How do we understand life together under one God, one Lord, one Spirit? What does that mean that the same God gives to all, to each, and that we are left to function with each other together as a unified group? Uh, Next week, I get to be in Denver at the prayer tour, and Garrison will be here preaching on the rest of chapter 12, and it's going to talk about this metaphor of one body, many members. This picture that's given to us of the physical body, and there are no unusable parts. Everything is essential for the body to work together, for it to be properly applied. All parts are needed. And so Paul's going to go on this journey of helping us understand life in the Spirit of God and how the Spirit brings us together and uses believers to build up the body of Christ. So that's chapter 12. Let's go and we'll read the whole thing and then we'll start picking it apart. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are various gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between the Spirit's, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. All right, a couple of things. This is going to be a message on spiritual gifts, but it's also not going to be. It's going to be in the sense that we want to understand it to point to what Paul's trying to actually get to, unity in the body of Christ but he also does a substantial amount of teaching on these things called spiritual gifts, and so we want to understand that. There are four major places where spiritual gifting is talked about in the scriptures. Uh, the Bible college cheater way to remember them is 12, 12, 4, 4. Uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. And each of those chapters brings a different lens of spiritual gifts. Bob, do we have that chart that we can put up there? These gifts are not identical. The ones that are talked about in each section are um, varying. And one of the things that we learn from that is that Paul's objective is not to give us an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts that are all the gifts that anybody could have are contained in these lists. We got it? All right, there it is. Uh, But rather, what we learn is that these gifts are perhaps what Paul and Peter have seen in the church And they start to share them with the body as examples or ideas of the way that the Spirit of God will manifest. We know that because not one of those lists is identical to the other, but each of them creates a significant amount of overlap. The most distinct is Ephesians chapter 4, where it says that Jesus gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Those are considered gifts because Jesus gave them. That's the, uh, the reason that that list is included in this. The rest are in a bit of a different category than what we see in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, which are more role-based gifting. The rest of the gifts we see are given for a different purpose. And so Paul's going to write, and he's going to try and help the church understand how this all works. What does it mean to be a part of a family? What does it mean to be a part of a body? And how does it come together? How does does being diverse and unified work? It works in the Spirit of God. It works when we come together under His name and under His authority. So let's dig into the text. It says in chapter 12, verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. So most likely what Paul's doing right here is responding to the letter that the Corinthian church sent to him. If you remember, there are two different things that Paul's been working off of as he writes this letter. One is the report from Chloe's people. 
He sent Chloe, or Chloe and her people had gone to Corinth. They had been there, spent some time there, come back to Paul and said, we saw this, we saw this, we saw this, we saw this. They told him what they saw in the church, and Paul's been guiding them through that. The other thing that we have deduced from Paul saying uh, he's writing to them in light of what they had written to him is that the Corinthian church sent him a letter. Hey, Paul, we have these questions. We know what you taught us, and we're interested to know more. This is a really interesting part where they, it says, now concerning spiritual gifts, and the word that Paul uses there is pneumatica, spiritual gifts or spirituals, and they're writing and asking about this thing. We want to know about the Holy Spirit. And Paul writes and he says, basically he's going to tell them about charismata, spiritual gifts or what is more accurately known as grace gifts. Charismata, uh, that word might sound familiar. You might have heard of the charismatic church or the charismatic movement has to do with grace gifts and being applied in the body of Christ. And so we have this idea of the charismata coming from 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, 1 Peter 4, and Romans chapter 12. And so Paul's writing and he says, now concerning pneumatica, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. And then he's going to bring charismata into the mix and try and teach and help understand based on that. So they want to know one thing and he's going to answer it a bit of a different way. That's how some of that language is working. Whenever Paul says, I do not want you to be uninformed, he's stepping into teacher mode. He's trying to give them framework or theology that they need to know. So here we go, verse two. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Now this is a letter that's written to Jews and Gentiles. And in this particular moment, Paul is writing to the Gentiles and their pagan history because they had experiences that they were trying to understand in light of the theology that had been taught to them. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Okay, what we understand is that in the pagan life, there are spiritual experiences that are legitimate spiritual experiences. Uh, You might notice that people today might say, well, I'm not religious or I'm not a Christian, but I'm very spiritual. That idea of being spiritual but not filled with the Spirit is a very real thing. People are absolutely spiritual that are not filled by the Spirit. And one of the things that we see is that that spiritual world has a reality to it. We see that in Acts chapter 16. There's a girl that is, uh, she's a slave girl, and she is filled with demons and is able to speak and discern things. And in that, her owners were making a ton of money off of her ability to tell the future. It wasn't fake. It was very, very real. And Jesus doesn't deal with it as fake. He doesn't show up to this slave girl and just say, oh, no, 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 she's just faking it. She doesn't actually know the future. Only God knows the future. He casts the demon out, and the slave girl's owners are frustrated because Jesus cost them a lot of money. There's a very real spiritual world, and Paul's affirming that when you were pagans, you experienced it. So you have a spiritual history And now you need to know how to discern that spiritual history from what the Holy Spirit does in believers, and I'm going to teach you that. So I want you to hear that what Paul's doing right now is helping them decide if their experiences are from the Spirit or if they are from the enemy, from Satan himself, because their overlap is enough to where they're curious. They want to know what's going on. So Paul writes into this. He says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. He's teaching his church how to discern if something from his God is from God or if it's from the enemy. And here is the way that he teaches them. If someone's in the Spirit of God, they can't say Jesus is accursed. Now, I fully believe that I'm in the Spirit of God, and you heard me just now say Jesus is accursed. It didn't stop at Jesus is accursed. It's not like it, like somehow the Spirit of God stops me from being able to say the words. And there might even be people that don't know Jesus that can say Jesus is Lord. It doesn't stop at And in that, we know that Paul's not talking about just saying the words. He's not saying that anybody filled by the Spirit can't say those words. None of us have ever seen anybody get stopped from saying those words before. That's not the point that Paul's making. The point that he's making is this. 
If you are filled by the Spirit, it's going to send your life in one direction, and it's going to send your ministry to others in one direction. And if you're not filled by the Spirit, it's going to send your life in another direction, and it's going to send your ministry in another direction. A great place to go to understand this better is Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. It says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So the point that Paul is making to both the Galatians and the Corinthians is, look, when we say Jesus is Lord, and not just, again, with our words, but with our lives, when we acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he rules and reigns over my life, it's going to lead us in a direction towards Jesus. It's going to shape our lives to look more like Jesus. When we say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm filled by the Spirit, we are no longer neutral, and Paul's point is that you never were. There is no such thing as neutral spirituality. You are either moving towards Christ, which is what the Holy Spirit does, or you are moving away from Christ. So for somebody to declare, I'm a follower of Jesus, yet their life does not reflect that in any way, and they're totally disinterested in pursuing him. So a great example of this, a modern example, is sexual immorality. Many people might say, I'm a follower of Jesus, yet live in sexual immorality in an ongoing basis. Paul's already dealt with that in chapter 5, basically saying, what is going on? That's not life in the church. To say that you're a follower of Jesus and with no repentance to participate in not only sexual immorality, but idolatry and greed and swindling and on and on, that is, that's not life in the body of Christ. When you give your life to Jesus and the Spirit of God fills you, he starts to reform and redeem and transform and change your morality, your character, your behavior. Those things change. You don't change them to make God happy. You don't become a better person so that God will bless you. That's not the point. But when the Spirit of God comes upon us, it starts to redeem who we are. And Paul is totally clear on this. That's not even the point. He's like, this is the baseline. When we have the Spirit of God, it's going to lead us towards Jesus, and the ministry is going to lead other people toward Jesus. When we don't have the Spirit of God, it's going to lead us away from Jesus, and the ministry or whatever we do is going to lead people away from Jesus. The mute idols, it's going to lead people towards the enemy. So people are spiritual. All of us are spiritual. Even the atheists are spiritual, and there are very few actual atheists I think it's sub 10% in a, in a national survey of people that actually claim true atheism. It's, very, it's a relatively small amount. People, ones that believe they're spiritual, and even the ones that don't, find themselves either working towards Jesus by the power of his spirit or working away from Jesus by the power of the enemy. And that's Paul's understanding of this. So he says this, uh, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit... And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So we're kind of back to the main point that Paul's trying to get at. You guys have these experiences. Things are happening. You're either going to move towards Jesus or away from him. Yes, those things are happening, and they're okay. They're fine. You'll know what is for the Lord. And then he goes on to say, I want you to understand how God works. Now, this is subtle teaching. If we're in 1A, 1B as unity and spiritual gifts, 1C would be Paul's Trinitarian theology. I want you to look at how he breaks this down. He says, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, varieties of service, but the same Lord, that's Jesus in New Testament language, varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers. If we have those, the breakdown of those, it's helpful to kind of see the different words that are used here. When Paul refers to the spirit, the Spirit gives us gifting. He actually gives us things to minister to each other. That's going to be what the rest of the section is about. What Jesus does is he teaches us to serve. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
This picture of Jesus as Lord is not Jesus as dominator. This is Jesus as servant. He lays himself down. He washes his disciples' feet. He dies on the cross. Jesus serves. Bob, do we have that one or no? The diakonos? Yeah, that one. There we go. All right, so it's helpful to see this. So the gifting is the same word that we've been talking about, the charisma, the uh, grace gift that the Spirit gives. The service of the Lord is the diaconi. If you've heard the word deacon before, it's to serve. Uh, a deacon in a church, even if it's an official position or an unofficial position, is simply a servant to the church, somebody that's willing to participate in serving the body. And that's the example that Jesus gave us. Whenever we see Jesus as Lord, we're seeing Jesus as servant. And then we see the working of God is energimata, and that's where we get the word energy from, It's the power or the source of the working that God does. The Father is involved in that. It all flows from God. So we have the service of Jesus, the gifting of the Spirit, and the power from God. And Paul's teaching them this Trinitarian theology that's involved in how the body works together. I just want to stop for a moment and acknowledge the fact that the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe has a church, has a people, and his choice is to empower those people, as humble and broken as they are, to minister to each other, and that's how his glory is going to be seen when these jars of clay, these vessels, are used to communicate Jesus to each other by building each other up and ministering to each other, Jesus is seen most clearly. He told Paul this. He said, my power is perfected in your weakness. I'm seen more clearly when you're not at your full strength, in your full glory, doing your full business. That's when I get the glory. So Paul is referencing this as he teaches them about his Trinitarian theology. Spirit, Lord, God, they all give. They all show us and they all lead us how to be a part of the body. Okay, verse 7, one of the more critical verses in our understanding of gifting of the Spirit. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Okay, there's a lot of words that need to be uh, dealt with in there. The first is, to each is given. Uh, Very easily, the Scriptures could have said, to some is given, and we would have had this idea that some people are gifted by the Spirit to minister and others just are not. In fact, that's probably most of our theology. Oh, other people are gifted to do that. I am not gifted to do that. Other people can minister to each other. I am not ministering to the others. I'm not in that same category. That's not the theology of the Spirit of God. So everybody who calls on the name of Jesus to be saved receives the Spirit of God. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit, the deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. That's Ephesians chapter 1. With the Spirit comes gifting to each is given and now here's the next word that needs to be described a manifestation a manifestation of the spirit now that word manifestation can sound kind of spooky but basically it means a revelation or an appearance of the spirit to each person is given an appearance of the spirit of god a revelation of the spirit of god a manifestation of the spirit of god In other words, the Spirit of God moves through each person that's a part of the body of Christ. For what purpose? For the common good. To what we'll see as he gets to more of this in chapter 14, to build up the body of Christ. It's part of the ministry of the Spirit, not simply to show up and do ministry. The Spirit of God shows up and does ministry through each one. And so what we have to consider in this is that God has chosen in his sovereign ability to minister to his people through his people. That's got to be our understanding of how God loves to work. Does he ever work outside of that? I, I guess I would have to say yes. But what we learn from 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, is that the norm of how God works is through the body to the body through you to other people. Okay, so when you think about this, you understand that God is giving you something to use. Uh, Is it something for you to take pride in? 
Is it something for you to boast about? Is it something for you to point to that gifting and say, look at how great I am? That's a lot of what Paul was dealing with is people that were trying to find status in their spirituality. And Paul's basically saying, knock it off. There's no status in your spirituality. It's one God that gives to all, one spirit that gives to all, and we'll get to one spirit that apportions to all according to his will. So let's continue on. Paul's gonna give us a list of gifts And these gifts are, uh, again, not exhaustive, but what we can guess is that these are some of the things that Paul saw in Jesus and some of the things that Paul has now seen played out in the life of the church. So let's take a look at this list. Verse 8, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. I wanted to try and find a, uh, a list of definitions that would just be helpful to try and wrap our heads around what these gifts are so that we can know as we interact, as we carry out life in the Spirit, what it might look like for us to do the things that Paul says the Spirit of God does in the church to build up the church. So first, let's take verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. That's logos sophia. That's a word of wisdom. So if you've ever heard the phrase a word of wisdom, it comes straight out of the Greek. It's a transliteration from the Greek. Logos is word or message and sophia is wisdom. The idea behind a word of wisdom is that it is a message or word of wisdom given to assist believers in practical application of God's word in their lives. These are people that oftentimes have the ability, and it happens in counseling-type settings or friendship-type settings or relationship-type settings, to minister to another believer by helping to guide them in the day-to-day decision-making process of life through the Spirit of God. Uh, quick survey. How many of you have ever needed wisdom in your life? Just throw your hand up. All right, good. How many of you have ever been helped by another believer or given an encouragement of wisdom by another believer in your journey? All right. The Spirit of God, this is a frequently used gift to minister to each other by helping to apply the wisdom of the Scriptures to the moment, to bring that word. And maybe you even know somebody that can do this just time and time again, and the Spirit of God uses them to minister with what feels like the supernatural application of the scriptures to know God's word. We see Jesus do this time and time and time again through parables, through using the Old Testament to bringing the scriptures to life and applying it to circumstances and helping sort through what do you do in this situation? Well, whose face is on the coin? Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's an incredible ability to bring wisdom to a moment using God's word in his way. All right, a word of knowledge. Uh, This is logos gnosis. It's the exact same thing. A word or a message or an utterance of knowledge is given, uh, knowledge given to assist believers in theological matters. Now, I know that's a little bit vague, but there's kind of two main ways that the word of knowledge uh, makes itself known. One is a supernatural knowledge of the scriptures. A great example of this is Jesus at age 12 going to the temple, and he starts teaching the rabbis. And the rabbis are like, who's this kid? That's my translation of Luke chapter 2. But it's this unbelievable, and I'll say unbelievable, supernatural knowledge of the scriptures, the ability to interact with them, discern what they mean, and bring the truth of God's word to light. Another word of knowledge we see from Jesus with the woman, the Samaritan woman. When he meets her and he says, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You've had six husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. That's a word of knowledge. That's a a, a supernatural knowledge that was given for the purpose ultimately of bringing the gospel or building up the body, the common good. Knowing something that isn't known, that's God-given. That's a word of knowledge. So just to give you an idea of how that played out in the life of Jesus. Faith, to be firmly persuaded of God's power and promises to accomplish his will and purpose and to display such a confidence in him and his word that circumstances and obstacles do not shake that conviction. Um, 
Great example, I, I don't know if you know somebody with a gift of faith that you just see faith in them that is hard to even explain. Uh, and by the way, the gift of faith is not the same as being optimistic. Just throwing that out there. Optimism is different than a, uh, a faith gift. But uh, Kristen and I, our mentors, Chris and Meryl Vinand, uh, we've seen a faith gift in them. We've watched it play out in their life. And just uh, about a month or so ago, uh, they sent out a, a message on our WhatsApp group to the Genesis Collective Leadership saying that their, um, their landlord or the building owner of the place that they gather uh, has told them that they can't use it anymore starting next week. So it was one of these situations where the, the business owner was letting them use the place for free. It was an incredibly generous situation. And then the owner of the building found out that there was a church meeting in his building and said, no, that's not going to happen. And he told the business owner, you can't do that church thing. So business owner had to tell Chris and Merrill, next week, it's, uh, I can't let you back in. So they sent this message to Kristen and I, and I, I just remember, like, I, I have a hard time being worried because it's Chris and Merrill, and they just live by faith in a different way than I have ever experienced or that we've ever seen. It's just, it's unique, it's different, it's supernatural. And I think, you remember how long? 48 hours, 36 hours, something like that later. We got another message. Hey guys, just wanted to update you. Uh, somebody gave us a call and said that they have a building available for us. We can use it for free. We get office space during the week. It's bigger, more beautiful, more accessible than anything we've ever had before. <laughs> Unbelievable story. Thanks everyone for praying. God bless. <laughs> and I, I went to Chris and I was like, I just, yeah, of course. <laughs> Now, it's not, a, it's not a prosperity gospel where if you have enough faith, God will come through in the end. Now, it's just it's faith. It's a big and confident belief that God's purposes are gonna be carried out. And for Chris, if God asked us to plant a church in Orange County, he's gonna provide a way for us to be the church that he's called us to be, and he did. And they walk by that faith. I love it. It's, it's encouraging to me to watch that gift play out. Uh, the gifts of healing. This is the only one that's actually plural in this whole list. Uh, to be used as a means through which God makes people whole, either physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. Okay, did you see Jesus' people uh, heal people physically? Yes, many, many times, all right? Uh, mentally, I want you to think for a moment, uh, uh, the bleeding woman. She creeps up behind Jesus and touches the hem of his cloak, and she's healed. The physical was done. Jesus could have just felt it go out of him and just kept on walking. She was healed, done deal, but there was more to the story. He turns and says, who touched my cloak? And then over the course of the next few minutes, this woman who for ages had been an outcast, unclean, uh, completely shunned by her society, was dignified given value by Jesus. He didn't just treat her physically. He helped this woman's emotional capacity to participate in her society. He healed that as well. He ministered to her in a powerful way. Think of Zacchaeus. Come down here. I want to go to your house tonight. Nobody goes to my house, especially not the rabbis. Jesus' healing ministry was physical. It was emotional. Mental. There were people that were full-blown considered insane and were possessed by demons. And not only did Jesus cast those demons out, but he brought them to their right mind. A man who had been chained up by his city was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him. And spiritually, Jesus, I was just reading the other day the story of the guys lowering their, their buddy into the, into the midst of Jesus' teaching in a full house. And he doesn't just say, Get up and take your mat and walk. He gets there, but he starts by saying, your sins are forgiven. He heals the man spiritually, and the Pharisees freak out about that, and he's like, what's it easier for me to say? Get up and take your mat and walk? Fine. That's, again, my translation. And so the guy takes his mat and walks, but Jesus is dealing with spiritual condition. He's healing people spiritually. And so this, these gifts of healing are brought to us, and they're used. Do you believe that Jesus wants to continue to heal? Do you believe that he wants to continue to minister to people physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually? Even to this day, the answer is absolutely yes, and the Spirit of God will fill us and minister in that way. We don't believe that it's every time, but we do believe that the Spirit of God works in this way, in a big way. Miracle working. 
to be enabled by God to perform mighty deeds which witnesses acknowledge to be of, of supernatural origin and means. Jesus did this frequently. It wasn't always connected to healing. There was that time that the boat left without him and he had to catch up, so he walked on the water to get out there. Again, my interpretation. Jesus walked on the water, but it wasn't just him. Peter said, Lord, if it's you, call to me and I'll come out to you. And he invited Peter out. And there were two people walking on the surface of the Sea of Galilee for a brief moment before Peter fell in. Think of turning water into wine. Miraculous works that are pictures of the power of God to overcome the physical laws of nature and to demonstrate God's power. Prophecy, to speak forth the message of God to his people. We'll get a ton into prophecy as we go into chapter 14. It goes deep, deep, deep into that. But just a a brief picture of prophecy. It's given to edify. It's given to build up and encourage the body of Christ. It's not always about asteroids in 2023. In fact, it rarely is. The gift of prophecy is a gift of encouragement, a prophetic message from the Lord to speak into the lives of people at the right time to encourage and build them up. I've shared this story before, but years ago we were meeting at Los Cerritos Middle School and I I felt the Lord, uh, I had noticed this girl walk in. We knew her, but I I had noticed her um, in there and just was praying as I was worshiping and felt like the Lord was just bringing her face to my mind, encouraging me to go to her. So I grabbed Vanessa Marsden and we walked over to this girl. We just said, hey, it's great to see you. Can we pray for you? And she shared with us that she had been standing there praying God, if you are real, would you send somebody to me right now to remind me that you're here? That was her prayer, and the Lord had been stirring me and ultimately us, Vanessa, to go and minister to this girl. And even those are are just the prophetic moments of God's message to his people. It's not always, thus saith the Lord, but sometimes it's just the right moment at the right time, that phone call, that encouragement, that word that just builds up the body of Christ, and God ministers in that way. Distinguishing spirits, to clearly distinguish truth from error by judging whether the behavior or teaching is from God, Satan, human error, or human power. This is an incredibly um, necessary gift with every generation to discern or distinguish the origin of certain teaching or activities. It's something that that the church needs to be aware of and the Spirit actually gifts people to be able to identify the origin of certain things. That particular thing might be demonic. That particular thing is just people going off human error, human power. This is from the Lord. And that discernment is necessary as we hear just endless amounts of teaching for the church to be able to uh, wade through the teaching and wade through the behaviors of people of God or just people in the world. Tongues, to speak in a language not previously learned so unbelievers can hear God's message in their own language or the body be edified. Okay, so in this kind of situation, it's, uh, it's just a helpful definition, by the way. All these definitions are not biblical. The Bible doesn't work like a dictionary. Uh, it gives the, the word or the, the picture and then we're left to sort of piece together what that means. So we have examples in the scriptures of people speaking in one language and many people hearing that message in their own tongue. Um, that's, a, that's a picture of tongues being used. We have another picture where people start to, all it says is, speak in tongues. It's unknown whether that is a completely unknown language or just an unknown to that person language, but the idea being that the Spirit of God speaks through people in foreign tongues or unknown tongues to minister to the body. Now again, chapter 14 will go deep in depth on tongues. It's largely understood that the Corinthian church were sort of elevating the gift of tongues over other gifts because it was a uh, a spotlighted gift. It sounded interesting. It was uniquely spiritual in their opinion. And Paul basically goes and says, look, unless there's an interpreter, it's a distraction. Uh, If people don't know what you're saying, if it's not prophetic and it's just noise, then it's not helpful. And so he's trying to help them level out their understanding of the gifting. He's not being unreasonable and saying get rid of it. He actually says, I speak in tongues and I wish that you did too. He'll go into that. But this idea of just don't elevate it over the other gifts becomes important to Paul. 
Um, to give a, a picture of how this might work, a guy shared with us, we do this message at the queue uh, midweek, and a guy shared with us, you can ask me who it is later if you want, but he, he said, you can use this story and you can share my name or not share my name. I'm choosing not to, just for kicks and giggles, you guys. Uh, so he shared this story with me and he said uh, they were ministering in the Philippines and they were going uh, city to city, town to town and preaching the gospel and they had an interpreter and they were kind of going to these places and they went up into the mountains and they found a uh, village where um, basically the dialects didn't line up. So from English to Tagalog and then what this guy knew, the various dialects that he knew did not go into this town and the town didn't have enough understanding of Tagalog to be able to interact at all. So they start preaching and this town's basically using signals to say we have no idea what you're talking about. So they stop and they try and figure it out and the translator says, uh, we need it, we'll go, we'll go back to the city, we'll find somebody that speaks this dialect and we'll come back and we'll preach the gospel. And so our guy said that he felt like the Lord told him to just start preaching. So he just started preaching in English to this crowd. And they'll turn around and look at him and they start responding to him and they had enough of an ability in Tagalog to tell the interpreter that they could understand him and they were excited that they were able to hear the message of the gospel in their own ear, in their own tongue. In our generation, in our church, here and now, the gift of tongues being used to evangelize the nations. Those are things that, guys, you just, you look at and you see God using these things. And it's important to understand that um, whatever debates exist, and you may, you may be raw enough to not even know that debates exist about gifting. People try and talk about whether they still exist or don't exist or that kind of a thing. Uh, we're of the opinion, not only are they still in existence, but God is actively using them to build up his body. He wants to speak to us. That's the contrast. You were led astray to mute idols. This God is not mute. He speaks. He speaks to us and he ministers to us and he loves to interact with us. And so as we understand this, 1 Corinthians 12, we start to see the value of these gifts. The last one, interpreting tongues, is the ability to translate. Again, unknown. It's not a spiritual gift if Liz stands up and speaks Spanish and we're like, oh, the gift of tongues. She's Puerto Rican, guys. Uh, <laughs> and it's not a spiritual gift if Kristen starts to translate because she majored in Spanish. She knows how to speak it. So th that's not spiritual gifting. That's just people speaking languages and knowing languages. Spiritual gifting would be an unknown tongue and an unknown ability to interpret and to bring the interpretation of that message to the body in some setting. So just to give you an idea, that's, that's how those gifts might work. So Paul closes out this particular section by saying all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, when you see this, you start to understand gifting and its distribution as the sole uh, discretion of the Holy Spirit. He discerns when to give the gifts and in what measure. Peter writes about this particular thing in 1 Peter 4.10. He says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. These grace gifts are given by God. They're called grace gifts. That word charisma is important. There's a reason Paul switches from pneumatica, spiritual gifts, to charisma, grace gifts. Because it's not on you. You don't control the flow. It's not your ability to start and stop the Spirit of God. It's entirely the grace of God to give you these gifts and to minister to the body. And it's not even for you. If you start to take credit for the, the working that's going through you, the ministry that's happening through you completely defeats the purpose. It's to be for the common good, to build up the body of Christ. The Corinthians were fighting for status, and Paul uses the teaching on spiritual gifting to eliminate status in the church. The Spirit's giving it to everybody. Why are you being so weird about this? Again, my interpretation. That's what Paul's basically saying. Don't take credit for something that God is gifting you with. But don't minimize the need for the gifting of the Spirit in the body because we need these gifts to function properly as the church. Paul will go into that in extensive detail next week. The Spirit is going to give them. Our job 
as his children is to be ready to serve. There's two ways that we can err. Error. E-R-R. And there's no O-R when I say it that way. Error. There's two ways that we can err when it comes to spiritual gifting. One is to demand that our gift be used. In that, and I understand that there are many churches that might, and even us at times, that might struggle to embrace a person's gifting, put it to work, figure out how it fits in the body, kind of administrate the whole gifting thing. It can be hard to figure those pieces out sometimes. Uh, We talked about community groups. One of the big reasons that we have them is that most gifting doesn't exist on a Sunday morning. And that exist is the wrong word. Most gifting isn't put to use on a Sunday morning. But in the life of the community, in life together as believers, again, they met in the temple and house to house, you see more of the body of Christ able to put those gifts to work. This context that Paul was writing into likely one or a sequence of house churches, anywhere from 50 to 100 people on the large side, anywhere from 10 to 50 people on the smaller side, though he is writing to a larger house church gathering, most likely in Corinth. There were settings where, in addition to a, you know, 90-minute service with, uh, you know, guitars and drums, I'm sure they did it exactly this way, they also had a meal together. They didn't do it this way, that's a joke. They ate a meal together, They shared the table together. They ministered to each other. We'll see in chapter 14 that some would bring a hymn and some would bring a song. Some would bring a prophecy and a tongue. Those things were were brought. The gifts were shared. And to be totally honest, we're much more designed for that in a community group setting than we are in our Sunday gathering setting. I don't think that makes what we're doing here wrong because I do see evidence of this kind of a larger gathering in the scriptures. I think there's value to what we do when we come together like this, but we miss out if this is all you participate in and if you never express those gifts that God has given you. So the one error is to demand that your gift be used in a certain setting. It may just not be the time or place, and there is a responsibility on the elders to weigh, according to 1 Thessalonians, to weigh prophecy, to consider, uh, to take care of the church, Paul will instruct the leaders of the church in in sort of how to build order into the church because God's not a God of chaos. And so that's part of our responsibility in the gathered setting is how how to bring those gifts. But in the smaller setting, it does create more opportunity for gifting to be used to build up the body. So one is don't demand that your gift be used. The second would be to render yourself unwilling or unable to be used by the Spirit of God to minister those people are going to be the ones who minister. I'm not. I don't know enough to do those things. I'm not ready enough to do those things. What we see in this passage, again, is that um, self-disqualification from the Spirit is not really an option. If you're in Christ, the Spirit gives to each according to His will. He's the one who gifts. He's the one who does the activity of empowering you to do something. And so your job as a follower of Jesus, if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit of God, the deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. If you are in the Spirit, you walk through this life and being a part of the body ready and willing to be used by God in any moment. Not demanding, but totally willing you will start to see the church differently when you walk into gatherings, prayer meetings, Sunday mornings, community groups, ready to be used by God. Lord, do you, do you want to use me today? You stop looking at the words when we're singing and you start actually looking at other people. You might see pain on somebody's face and feel this ping in your heart to go and minister to them and ask them, can I pray for you? Can I encourage you? Is there anything that you need prayer for? Anything that I can minister to? You start to see joy on somebody's face and you come alongside them and exhort them and and rejoice with them and bring this encouragement. You might feel like the Lord just says, no, I want you to call that person as soon as we're done. Would you just give them a call? They need to hear hear my voice through you just to be encouraged and lifted up. You just start to see things differently when you walk into a situation saying, Lord, would you, would you use me? I'm yours. As you will, as you apportion, in your measure, I want to I I lift up the body. 
And if today's the day that I need to be lifted up, we have the humility to actually receive when other people want to minister. Some people on prayer duty, you might see them and you're like, all right, they're on the prayer team this morning, but man, they just need to be encouraged. I can't even tell you how many times that's happened to me where I've been on prayer duty and somebody's come up to me and they're just like, I feel like the Lord wants me to pray for you today. I'm like, all right, jam it, let's go. Don't resist when the Spirit wants to minister to you and be willing when the Spirit wants to minister to others and we start to see the body of Christ start to thrive and grow and be encouraged and built up in that. I feel like Paul doesn't get really crazy around spiritual gifts. He's actually pretty measured around this stuff. We tend to go kind of weird with it sometimes. Paul doesn't. It's like this is, this is how the Spirit works. This is the new norm of people filled by the Spirit of God to minister in the Spirit of God. So open your hands up and be ready for the Spirit to apportion to you gifting to build up the body. So I wanted to um, do two things out of this. One is why we worship. Just even in response, and I, I, I understand that we don't just want to take one Sunday and make it Spiritual Gifts Sunday and make everybody start ministering all of a sudden because that would be kind of a weird application of this passage. So here's maybe a different, a different tack because this is bigger than just any one gathering or one Sunday. I want you to consider when you've seen the Spirit of God minister through another person. So just even as we're worshiping, taking communion, offering, prayer, just those things, just start, use the time to reflect on how have you seen the Spirit of God, not in you, but in somebody else, minister, maybe to you or maybe to another person. And the assignment that I'm gonna give is sometime this week, I'd love for you to encourage that person. Hey, I saw the Spirit of God use you in this way. It's one of those things that we can do to just encourage and build up and actually create an environment, a culture where we're acknowledging the Spirit of God in somebody. Not, not them, not to give them glory, but there's so much insecurity in us. We walk around with so much insecurity around ministry. So if there is somebody that you can encourage, do it this week. Take the time and do that. So let me pray for us, and we'll spend some time reflecting in worship. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We're humbled that you would say that your means to encourage your body in addition to giving us your word, is that through your spirit, you want to minister and build up and love and encourage and shape your people through your people. Lord, would every single one of us, in humility, raise our hands in willingness to be used by you. What we want, Jesus, is a church that is encouraged and built up to look more like you. And if we get to be a part of that, if your spirit wants to contribute to that through each one of us, Lord, would we walk into every day, every gathering, every meeting, every counseling session, every time together with open hands saying, Lord, is there anything you want to do? I want to be ready to be used by you. Jesus, we love you and we're so grateful to be a part of this, this story of yours. Thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.